Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He is a martial arts master. He's considered to be the father of mixed movement arts culture, and he's the founder of Budokan. Welcome to the show, the movement teacher of teachers himself, Cameron Shane. Hello, sir. Thanks, brother. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolute pleasure. I've been a fan of your work for a long time. So have many others. I'm a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school, so that's helped me out in many ways in that respect. But also, I'm 42, and when I started getting my late 30s, I'm like, man, you know, movement's way more important than I ever realized it was before. So what mm -hmm. i like you kind of just to start off with before we deep dive into everything is just the importance and your kind of mindset and philosophy on movement at any age, not just older, but younger as well. My general philosophy is that I want to die as young as possible, just like in terms of, of a general approach yeah. to life, meaning that I want to have a youthfulness and a vitality that still exists into my advanced years. I mean, humans have the potential of living to 120 consistently. There have been many people recorded at around 120. Some even suggest people have lived as old as 150, uh, you know, and whether you believe in even further mystic ideas uh, there, you know, the Bible has suggested people lived to two and three and 400 years old. Whether you, you know, believe in any of these kinds of ideas, I think that at least what we know through modern medicine, modern history, we can confirm that 120 years is possible. Most people believe because society has normalized death at around, you know, seven, you know, I mean, look, if somebody dies in their 20s, it's a tragedy. If they die in their 30s, it's like, oh, that's, that's tough. They die in their 40s. It's like, well, you know, they were getting, you know, they lived a pretty, yeah. <laughs> they were living a good, you know, they lived a good life. If they died in their 50s. You're just like, well, you know, 50 years old, you know. If they die in their 60s and 70s and 80, you know, you just, it just, we just start to accept death as a normal thing that happens mm. between 50 and 80. I mean, of course, there's a scale there, but again, you're not shocked at a 50 year old dying. It's just more like, oh, well, you know, people die at 50 you're not shocked at all when someone dies at 80, but we live to 120 and it's just absurd that we would accept anything less than that, mm. that we would be, you know, you even hear people say, well, I don't want to be, I don't even want to live to 90. I don't want to live. I'm like, no, the problem is you don't want to live to 90 and look like what, you know, modern society has produced. You know, a 90-year-old today does not look like a 90-year-old 300 years ago living in a proper environment, let's say hunter-gatherer tribe or something of that nature. So this idea that we should just be grateful for the 80 years we got and accept that, it's just a way for people to make peace with the decline in human beings, the decline in their nutrition Mm -hmm. the decline in their environment, the decline in their, you know, sort of mental fortitude, their strength. It just demonstrates that we ultimately, we want to normalize and accept 
our bad behavior so we don't have to feel guilty or ashamed of it. Sort of the way that these days we're trying to normalize obesity. We're telling, right. yeah, it's that's like a perfect one for one example. And that's the new modern thing. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Be proud to be fat. It's beautiful. Celebrate it. And I'm like, no, absolutely not. That is not at all what we want to celebrate. I can celebrate any person being big because people are small or big. That's irrelevant. That has nothing to do with whether they're obese or not. Mm -hmm. If a person is fat or obese, this is now something that is a health concern. Why I would celebrate that is absurd. Yeah, you know, exactly. There's no logic to that. And I think Ricky Jarvis, the comedian, said it. He said, you know, people don't want to be called obese anymore. They want to be called like, you know, I don't know, you know, weight challenged. Or I don't know <laughs> what new word they want. But he, he said, you know, it's so absurd that they want to reject the term obesity when that is the term created so that you didn't call them fat. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, you, you want a, yet another word that is yet softer for you to help you somehow cope with your refusal to take care of yourself. That's you a know. great way to word it. Yes. I love that. And, and not to mention, you mentioned even like by the age, the acceptance of this on different levels as a society, even it makes it quote unquote, okay. And anything unhealthy is not okay. And also getting to your seventies and eighties and being like this wheelchair bound borderline cripple, if not crippled person, that's another aspect, right? Like if I get to my eighties, nineties, so on and so forth, I want to be functional and be able to you go into that concept, even at that age, being functional and in movement. Well, I mean, with social media, one of the upsides is exposure to things that we didn't know we didn't know. And you can go on to social media, Instagram, Facebook. You can look, you can hashtag, you know, old people working out. Yeah. You can find some of the most savage 85 and 90 year olds yeah. Yeah. doing pull-ups, gymnastics. I mean, it's just crazy. You're just like, what in the hell? And it's not that they're the exception to the rule. That's not it at all. They're just in alignment with their health and they have never stopped staying in that alignment and everyone else who's stepped out of that alignment finds that it's just simply too hard to either get back in alignment or to stay so it's you know it's one or the other it's hard to stay there or it's hard to get back there hmm. because both take effort and grind you know i'm 51 and i've got to on a daily basis I got to grind with these kids. I've got a room full of 20 plus testosterone filled males who are trying to rip my arm off every day. Yeah. yeah. And you're either going to stay on point with that and you're going to keep working your anti-fragility, which is the concept of staying strong and growing from that strength versus a concept like durability, which I really love the concept of durable. I use the term quite often. The only shortcoming of the concept is that it doesn't imply growth. Like as an example, you know, a plate made of plastic, a plastic plate is durable. You can beat it up and, and do all kinds of things. You know, it's durable, but it doesn't get stronger after every use. 
because it's not alive. It doesn't have the ability to grow from the stress, from the pressure put on it versus humans. We have the ability to grow from pressure. And that's an incredible asset and gift that nature has given us that we can actually adapt and grow and become stronger through resistance and struggle and difficulty. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we don't acknowledge that and then act on that is just a, you know, it's the ultimate sort of form of privilege. You know, you just privileged, yeah. you just have so much comfort and so much uh, abundance that to struggle and to, again, once we were able to pipe water into our house we no longer had to walk down to the river right yeah right with a container and carry it back once that happened it caused a chain reaction of it's a bummer to say this but it caused a chain reaction of thinking and that, that thinking is oh we can make life easier we can make life simpler. And I totally get it. Like, I totally understand. Right. Yeah. I'm an engineer in a lot of ways. Like, as a scientist, I engineer movement. I engineer thinking. I'm critical thinking as a craft. I get the idea of looking for more efficiency. I get the idea of trying to make something work yeah. better, easier, faster. 100%. The downside is that we can't. Not don't. We can't often see the side effects or the symptoms of a behavior until we've had some time with it. Mm. Who could have known that plumbing would make us lazy? Yeah, right, right. But when you can just simply turn a faucet, when you can just simply Mm. turn a knob, again, it's just one step closer to relying on technology as opposed to grit and discipline and hard work and effort. And again, why would we be surprised that this generation is producing the softest of humanity historically? Oh, for sure. Why would we be surprised at that when we have the most technology, the most convenience? Yeah. I mean, you literally can touch a button and do things that no human could have imagined you could produce with the literal touch of a button. It's insane. It is. It really is. And I love your mindset and your viewpoint on things, your outlook. And I think it's very important for people to step back and look at that because people do get caught in the everyday hustle bustle of life. And it's so easy to get caught up in that. And then next, you know, we're pressing these buttons for all these things. Were you always thinking like this coming up or is that kind of right around when you started doing yoga and practicing like that or your martial arts? You know, I, you know, I think I was always philosophical, which means for me that I was always interested in many sides of a subject. Hmm. I was interested in understanding the truth versus understanding what made me feel most comfortable. Hmm. Okay. I would always prefer the truth over what makes me comfortable. So as an example something that might be easy to try on is, you know, your girlfriend, you ask her, Hey, do you think so-and-so is attractive? Do you find them attractive? And she says, Oh no, of course not. You're the only person I find attractive. (laughs) And then 
Or, you know, do you find them attractive? Yes, I, I do find them attractive. I think they're actually very attractive. Well, one of those is the truth and one of them is not. Right. And, okay. and the, the question is, do you want the truth or do you want what makes you comfortable? Interesting way. Of putting because it. Wow. If, if you get what makes you comfortable, then you don't have to do any work. Mm. And if you get what makes you uncomfortable, that implies effort. You've got to work through the discomfort. You've got to get on the other side of the discomfort. You've got to build strength from adversity, from difficulty, from you know when you don't feel safe or secure. And you learn to create that through effort. And that's the metaphor. It's, it's like, you know, we have to understand that in order to grow, we have to grind. You mm. can't grind if you don't have any work to do. If you don't have any work to do because you don't give yourself any work because you stay in your comfort, then you'll never get to the grind and you'll never get to the growth. So it's like I need adversity to then have a space for the grind and then the grind produces growth. And that's just a simple formula. Yeah. And it's universal, a universal formula. I do know, you know, through your martial arts training, a black belt and Olympic style Taekwondo, also Japanese karate though. Mm -hmm. um, and also BJJ training. I was a Gri Arashiro and Sanjay Biro, Raphael. Yeah. Yeah. I got my black belt actually this year under Rafael Lovato Jr. And oh, Shanji Hibero. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, yeah. I mean, I've been working on it since 2003. I started with Hicks and Gracie in Los Angeles in 2003. So I'd been training a long time, but I was always jumping in and out of the gi. I was doing a lot of building of my own art form and work. Yeah. And that just took me away from jujitsu. Didn't allow me to really concentrate on sort of achieving a black belt level of understanding. So then when I met Rafael and Shanji, they basically said, look, if you want to get your black belt, because I kind of think I communicate, look, yeah, I don't care. I'm a brown belt. I don't care if I get my black belt. It doesn't matter to me. And I was just doing mostly no gi. I'm like, look, you should finish the journey. You should get your, you know, finish that part of the journey at least. Get your black belt and get back in the gi. Get this handled. And for whatever reason, I just believed them and I trusted them. I, you know, I could have been like, nah, but I was like, okay. And I had the last four years, I had to really, really, really work at understanding what I didn't understand. Because, you know, the difficulty about going somewhere you haven't been is that you haven't been there. You don't right. know yeah. what you don't know. So it was difficult for me to shore up my game my whatever I was doing, but I really didn't know what was missing. What, what makes me a black belt and not a black belt? Right. right. You know, because it's like everybody knows an arm bar. Everybody knows a triangle. Everybody knows these basic concepts from white belt to black belt. And, you know, given that there is no black belt technique, it's just everything is a technique taught to everyone. And you either develop a black belt skill with it or you don't. I mean, there's lots of there are lots of blue belts who could be a black belt at an armbar. They could be a black belt at guard passing. But that doesn't mean they're a black belt at you know the lasso guard, uh, the de la Hiva, whatever. It just means that they've taken a technique and they've achieved a black belt level at it. Totally get that. 
but it's difficult when you just don't know what's missing. So it took mm. me uh, four years to figure out. And, and what's so funny, the discovery, because if you were asked me, and you're like, well, okay, what did you figure out was missing? <laughs> what's so funny was, yeah. is what I was missing was being, was being excellent, was being a black belt at the fundamentals. Right. That's, I wasn't missing anything. I wasn't missing uh, how to do any trickery, any kind of advanced concept. I was missing being a black belt at framing, escaping, passing, you know, just your fundamental meat and potato like this. If you can't do this, you don't understand the game kind of shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I always thought that was interesting. You know, a lot of the Gracie's say by the time you become a black belt, that's when you start to learn jujitsu. <laughs> you master the basics up to that point. I want to take that into what you do, Budokan. So booze, warrior, doze, way, and con spirit. So warrior, way, spirit, so to speak. How much is all your martial arts training, including, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu with your movement and your philosophies, what made you kind of naturally develop this direction for people to get better at? Well, I think it started when I started practicing yoga mm -hmm. and I was like, you know, something here is not complete because the yogis are like hyper-focused on sort of one expression of movement and also one expression of sort of life philosophy, which is renunciation, peace, kind of this life of removing negation, removing all these things. And so that, you know, you can you just sort of accept and, and embrace the world as it is. And I really appreciated that, except there was the missing part of the warrior for me, which mm. was the part where it's like, yeah, but what about all the stuff that I can fight and control and fix? There's a lot that I have the ability to affect and change. And what part of my practice is embracing what I can and cannot adjust? Because if I'm just focused on what I can adjust, or if I'm just focused on what I cannot adjust or affect, I get trapped on one of those sides. Oh, okay. the, the yogi's path of sort of acceptance or the warrior's path of resistance. And I don't want to be on either side. So I think what happened is when I found yoga, I was already a martial artist. When I found yoga, I found another side that I thought was really interesting that was very focused on that. And I was like, oh, these two things belong together. They're not being practiced together, but they belong together in a practice. And I had no dreams of affecting or building a global brand, a global art form or anything of that nature. Oh, wow. It was, okay. just, it was just more about wanting to teach authentically what I believed in. Because I think that's the pure essence of everything is, are you yeah. teaching what you believe in? Are you, is it sincerely you or are you teaching for you know, fame or wealth or status or whatever reason we do something. For me, I just love to teach. And I love to teach people how to get free from suffering. I think all of humanity could really benefit if more people cared about helping each other yeah. transition out of suffering. Totally. I totally agree. And that's amazing insight in that whole area. 
Hey, real quick, you have a very interesting background. Where are you located right now? We're in my dojo here. Oh, cool. Um, which is an outdoor open air barn that when I moved here, this big barn was here and I just converted oh. it, concreted the floors and put mats in and just turned it into a big Oh, that's dojo. awesome. Where's that located? Yeah, I'm located in Whitefish, Montana. And okay. that's where our, our movement school is. We're only open in the summer. People can come up here in the summertime and train with us in movement camps that are focused on certain subjects. So it'll be a mobility movement camp, you know, all under our signature sort of uh, system and methodology. So it'll be a Budokan movement camp, Budokan mobility, Budokan yoga, Budokan yoga or mobility for jujitsu, MMA. I try to give people an experience, like if they want to do a week long retreat and you know, have an experience training in something they love. That's what I hope to give them. You know? Oh, I love that. I love that. I'll put all your links up too for your website because you've got a lot of amazing programs for each category for people to do. But you also, to actually name drop, you train a bunch of celebrities, you know, like Charlie Sheen, Sean Penn, Slash, the list goes on and on. How'd you kind of run into Sanji Hibero and Rafael Lovato Jr., specifically with the jujitsu side of things? Well, when I was living in LA, like I said, I started with Hickson in LA and, and, and I was also just happened to be working with a lot of people in the entertainment business. I just, you know, you start with one, you get connected to another one. It's a fairly organic process of just meeting people, networking within, within a culture. At some point when I was in Miami running my own school, I had a UFC fighter named Josh Bergman, people's warrior. He's, he was, a, yeah. you know, old school early day, you know, kind of legend. He'd been in it for a long time with those old school guys like Diego Sanchez and that, you know, that whole sort of generation of fighters. And Josh came to a yoga training camp because he wanted to expand his skill set in yoga. He was still fighting at the time. So then I joined his team as his mobility coach at that time, flexibility coach, mobility coach, it fights, uh, uh, at least three more fights in the UFC while he was still in it. And I was doing some tape. I was, you know, looking at some upcoming fights we had, and I was looking at tape, and I came across uh, one of the guys he was going to fight uh, was fighting Rafael. And I just sort of got really interested, and in, I, I liked the way he moved. I was like, this guy really moves so interesting. He's got such a unique sort of physiology and way of moving. Yeah. Fascinated by it. And I started kind of researching him. I just kind of got all, you know, sidetracked. My ADD just kicked in. I was like, hey, yeah. who's this guy? What's he doing? And so I found that he was a world champion jujitsu fighter. And he was also sort of slowly rising up in the MMA world. Oh, yeah. And I think he had an LFA title. And then he got picked up by Bellator. And I met him right as he got picked up by Bellator. And we were together his entire run into his championship title fight against Musasi that he won. Uh, oh, wow. And that was his last fight because after that he had to retire because yeah. of a medical issue with this uh, brain thing that he has that's actually not even, it's not even concerning. Lots of people have it, but the medical association that governs the fight world would not let him fight again. Right. Okay. Yeah, I remember hearing that. That's pretty. Yeah. That was pretty crazy. Heart crushing. Yeah, it's pretty frustrating because you know it's like the guy's forty years old, 
He just wins the world title. He's put all this work in. And there are other athletes who have the same thing in the NFL, different places. And these guys are living their full lives, doing what they want to do. There are no symptoms of this, by the way. Like the normal diagnosis is just live your life normally as, as it is. There's no, yeah. something well, else to say. So yeah, so they just decided, no, we don't want to take the risk of him, you know, getting hit in the head and it causing him to die when it's like, yeah, but that's never happened. Yeah. yeah. There's no, there's no precedent for that, you know, and they don't want to have any legal liability for anything. So that's literally all it comes down to. They'll let so much crazy shit go on. Yeah. But right. This, yeah. yeah. But this is where they drew the line. So I reached out to Rafael after I watched his fight tape and I said, Hey, I think I could in some way support what you're doing. I could be an asset and help contribute. And his strength coach who at the time, uh, his name is Luke Tyree. He's an amazing strength coach. He knew me and said, yeah, you should definitely work with him. And so I really think it was Luke that made the big difference because I think had Luke said, oh, no, this guy's cheese ball. I wouldn't. <laughs> but he said, no, no, no. Definitely. So Luke got us connected in that way, I believe. And then Rafael came, started training with me in Miami. I met Shanji Hibero because Shanji's his jiu-jitsu coach and his brother. They've been together forever. That's who he got his black belt under. And those two guys became my professors. I had been training with a different person, Guy Adashiro, I got my brown belt with. But at the end, I just, I just reached a point there in my brown belt and in that where I was not progressing. Hmm. I was not going anywhere. And I just, you know, sometimes you just, you know, with a teacher, you just reach a place where, you know, there's no growth that you can create for whatever reason. Right. And I just reached that with them. But Shanji and Rafael knew how to mature me and get me there, which was what actually got me to the black belt. It's interesting in jiu-jitsu, you know, sometimes just the way different people approach teaching, you know, you can teach fundamentals. You may be the best person for these fundamentals and, and this idea, but then as students grow or become more, you know, advanced, you may not be the best person to teach that body of people to get them right. to the next stage. You may also be the same person who can teach more advanced students, but be terrible at teaching beginners. Right. Yeah. Great point. Yep. So being able to teach this entire scale from beginner to advanced, this is tough. Fortunately, because Shanji and Rafael are so, you know, Shanji is an eight-time world champion. Yeah. Black belt, adult, men's division. He's won it eight times. Yeah, he's a monster, yeah. He beat yeah. Hajar Gracie in the absolute. I mean, you're talking about one of the few people to ever even give Hajar Gracie a yeah. hard time. Yeah, he's saying a lot. <laughs> yeah. But that's Shanji, you know? And then you've got Rafael, probably the most, in my opinion, probably the most accomplished professional martial arts in the world. Not only does he have an IBJJF adult world championship title amongst other titles, he's also got a Bellator yeah. middleweight MMA world title. Yeah. You know, in ADCC, he's always been right up there at the top. 
I don't think he's accomplished a gold medal win at the ADCC tournament yet. And I say yet because I still think he'll fight. But I believe he's medaled. But he's certainly been considered one of the toughest guys in ADCC. Consistently, yeah. Yeah, he's just such a well, when it comes to being a well-rounded martial artist, Rafael is arguably one of the best. And when it comes to being one of the greatest jujitsu guys ever to do it, Shanji is again, yeah, you know, yeah. on in that top of that list. So yeah. learning from those guys has been an incredible gift. But what I learned from them mostly is just the grit and the determination to just stay after it, even when you don't want to, when you're exhausted, when you don't have anything left, at least mentally and you have to dig one layer deeper and find it yeah i think those two guys are phenomenal for that and that really helped unlock that for you and yeah it's amazing you never know which coach it is everybody's got their different pathways it may not be that a to z pathway that everybody else does you may have you may have a totally different tangent. I want to show a quick little video clip, which we can talk over. I want to see as you're doing like a flow for movement. This is great for jujitsu, martial artists of all styles. What's this mentally like free flow outside of obviously the mind melding with the body vibe. So what are your thoughts as you're rolling through something like this? What I'm doing right now and what all of us are doing right now is we've been learning these movement patterns for a long time. Mm -hmm. These are not new movement patterns to us. They're patterns that we've been perfecting, messing around with. And these patterns we then put together in a conversation. So in other words, if you think of it metaphorically, learning movement is like learning language. First, mm. you learn words, you get a vocabulary, you transition from those words into small sentences, easy conceptual, you know, statements. Uh, see, you know, see Tom run. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and then you start getting more complex. Maybe even you start becoming a bit of a poet. Maybe you start rapping. Think of the ability it takes to free form rap with no script you're just improvising as you go but it's making sense right it's, right you know, it's still logical you're not just saying words yeah that's a real skill quite difficult but it's something that we do in the human brain something that is repetitive that we start gaining control of and movement is like that i mean jujitsu is like that yeah. It's all a big mess when you start. Right. It's, yeah. it's right. It's just like, what in the fuck is all this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then what you try to do is reduce that down to these very small containers like, okay, let's just pass the guard. Okay, mm. let's just get out of the guard. Okay, let's just defend the guard pass. You know, and when you work in those containers, you can produce a good student, in my opinion, quite efficiently. And effectively, because you give them the proper environment to learn in. Because if you try to just give them jujitsu, right, yeah. which a lot of schools do, they make a mistake by just okay, here's the curriculum. You know, this week we're going to work on arm bars, and this week we're going to work on triangles. 
It's like, yeah, but how the fuck are they going to get to an arm bar or to right. a triangle or to a Kimura when they can't even wrestle? Right, right. You can't even get position. They don't have the ability to get position, interrupt a pass, you know, change the game. Like the fundamentals of the game are what I'm obsessed with and where I focus mm -hmm. my teachings. I don't care about the arm bar. It has its place and its purpose, and, uh, and, and the triangle has its place and its purpose. But the truth is, uh, what I really need people to understand is how to get position. And getting position is ultimately just wrestling. It's technical wrestling. Yeah, it's like you need to know how to wrestle. Because yeah. wrestling is the oldest form of movement besides just general locomotion for a human being. You know, like we were born, we started crawling, we started, you know, walking, we started wrestling. You know, yeah, with our yeah. other primates, uh, you know, that's what we did. You know, apes wrestle with apes and monkeys wrestle with monkeys and humans wrestle with humans. And it's like, okay, this is what we do. And it, it's like, it's our thing. We do it before we do yoga or we do any other sort of constructed movement methodology. We start first with what is in our genetic blueprint, what comes natural. Right. And wrestling is natural to people. Yeah, it's in us. It's in us to want to touch each other, grab, pull, connect, hug, roll around. I mean, it's just what we do. And people that don't learn how to do that, you're talking about basically a, a body of people that have in some way rejected or denied an intrinsic part of their being. The same way if you deny that you're violent, you've denied an intrinsic part of yourself. Everyone's violent. Everyone's violent, yeah. but some people, are, I'm not violent. I'm like, no, you're violent, but because you've denied and rejected your own violence, renounced it, now you don't have a relationship with it and you don't know how to be violent in integrity. You don't know how to be ethically violent mm, because there is an ethical violence that, you know, if someone's trying to steal your children, take them and murder them, you have to become violent, female or male. So to say that you're not ethically violent, you know, or, or to say that you don't know how or that you don't believe in ethical violence, I would argue that that's a perfect example of I must violate this other person's rights or space or, you know, whatever it is that they hold dearest to them in order to protect something that can't protect itself from harm. That is a great point. I mean, you see all the, you know, Socrates and all the most famous philosophers ever. They all were also soldiers at one point in their life. I love that aspect yeah. out of it. Do you do anything for breathing techniques and or meditation or anything like that? I would say I'm a lifelong Zen meditation practitioner. Hmm. Zen's probably the most fundamental style of meditation. It's very simple. You just sit and you observe self there's nothing else to it. It's, it requires a good bit of discipline to sit and keep sitting and do nothing. That's probably my go-to, and I've been doing it, I've been practicing for a long time. I don't have a particular breath system that I find particularly compelling. I've played with breath systems. Mm -hmm. I'm more of the school of thought of like animals move. There's no other animal on the planet that uses a breath system. Right. <laughs> That's I, a good I, point. Therefore, I, I don't really buy into the necessity of a breath system, except for creating some type of 
effect that I'm trying to induce. So if I want to create a certain effect, maybe I do some deep like breath of firework or, right. you know, something from the sort of pranayamic tradition in yoga. So lots of breath sort of patterns designed to create certain things. And what that is, is it's a forced production of, I could say the word environment, but I'm trying to produce some type of response by doing something that is unnecessary. Gotcha. Okay. I don't have to breathe that way. Yeah. In order to function. Now, let's get into the Wim Hof method. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. If I jump into a frozen lake, it may be that the breath work I'm doing there is what allows me to sustain my body temperature or my mental faculties. But why the fuck am I jumping into a frozen lake? Yeah. yeah. So, and, you know, I, and I'm not against cold plunging. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm yeah. saying that I'm doing it. It's like this. I jump into an environment I don't belong in. And then I figure out how to survive using a method I don't need unless I wasn't in that. If I right. wasn't in, in that <laughs> environment that I didn't need to be yeah. in to begin with. Right. That's a good point. So, so the way that human beings sort of, the way we think, is that we produce these environments. This is like diabetes. Diabetes mm. has never existed except mm. in modern history. Contemporary. I mean, it may have been something very rare, but who the fuck would have diabetes? You know, right. who would have access to all this shit food that they just overconsumed? Well, you know, humans didn't. So this is a modern day problem. And now we're trying to figure out what is the shot I can take? What's the pill I can take? How can I reverse this problem with pharmaceuticals? When the problem was created unnecessarily. And now I'm trying to come up with a solution yeah. for the problem. A problem that did not need to be there had it not been for my bad behavior. So that's the thing I feel about breath work. It's like the latest trend. It's the hottest thing. But it's right. like, you know, at the end of the day, I don't see any fucking gorillas jumping into frozen lakes <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or, or leopards or lions or yeah. nobo. <laughs> you know, it's just another thing humans do. For me, I'm trying to get back to what people really do. We stretch. We wrestle. We fuck. We fight. We eat. I mean, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Like, what do humans do? And if we can get back to that, you know, where we can move with integrity, we can eat with integrity, mm -hmm. we can fuck with integrity, yeah. we can fight with integrity, you know, like, like just can we be, because we're not going to stop doing those things. The right. question is, can we do them with ethics? And sincerity and authenticity and competence you know like who are we being human but then we get caught up doing other things that just literally don't have anything to do with what's necessary to be a human you know so jumping right. into a frozen lake is just not necessary to be a person but to deny what you can learn from it Oh, it would be silly. Of course you can learn from it.
Of course, it can benefit you. Of course, you can develop parts of yourself through the adversity and, and the discipline it takes to do that. But by the way, there's already plenty of shit in your life that you could be disciplined at, that you're, you're not yeah, yeah. like what you eat and how you speak and your emotional threshold and your emotional reactivity, all that shit, which is, mm. by the way, the problem with humanity, that's not being addressed. So what we do is we distract ourselves with all this other trickery and go, oh, dude, that was all about ice baths. Oh, now it's all about this. Oh, now it's all about that. It's like, yeah, but you haven't even fixed the fundamental shit that's causing you to suffer. Wow. That, and it's such guys, a simple takeaway, right? Like it's, it's because yeah. rudimentary, it's rudimentary down to basics. Well, and it goes back to jujitsu. You want to do all this fancy stuff, but you can't escape from the fucking mound. Right. Yeah, right. You no need to bear bolo when you can't even. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like you can't keep someone from passing your guard and you want to learn, you know, yeah, an inverted triangle, you know, da da da. It's like, dude. How about you just not suck at getting your guard passed? And yeah, which would... is a metaphorical sort of, if you think of it metaphorically, mm -hmm. it would be like saying, don't get your guard passed. Uh, how about don't lose your temper? How about you work on not losing your temper like the way you practice don't get your guard passed? Practicing sort of self-restraint, self-control is a principle to being a human being, there are ways to practice it that, you know, you're living every day that are happening, you know, every day. You don't need to go to fucking Poland and jump into a frozen pond. Right. Even like you said, nutrition or diet a couple of times here, even there, there's fad diets all over the place. There's eat this, don't eat that. There's also people who just eat willy nilly. I would imagine if I asked you like a tip you would give somebody, it's just like, where's your restraint? Where's your control? Where's your fundamentals on that. Everybody knows at this day and age what's a good thing to eat and what's not a good thing to eat, right? Oh, I mean, the amount of access to information, yeah. there's no excuse for you being poor, stupid, hungry. I mean, there's just so much access and abundance in the world. So much food is thrown away every day. Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So oh, this is my point. There's so much produced that if you're not getting it, it's because you're not grinding for it. You're not working mm -hmm. for it. And somebody's going to come back and say, oh, see there, there he goes again. You know, another one of these guys that says that, you know, you have to suffer or work hard to get things. And I'm like, well, you have to have a certain level of competence in certain areas to be sustainable. Right. Yeah. So I don't know what to tell you. I don't know. I don't know what to say, but you have to be competent in order to be sustainable. And kind of closing here, what I like to do with guys is just say, what's just an average training week like for you? You don't have to go super in depth or anything, but like a, a Monday through Sunday kind of deal, whether it's martial arts, uh, Budokan movement, everything in, in between. What's a general week look like for you? Well, every week I strength train. I do a lot of grip strength training. So I'm on the bars a lot. I do a lot of calisthenics. So I'm constantly doing pull-ups and kettlebell work, which is all focused on gripping. 
Gripping is, I think, the key to keeping upper trunk strength. And I run two miles uh, almost every day in the summertime, certainly. In the wintertime, I snowboard for miles, but in the summertime, I run two miles. So I strength train in calisthenics. I run. I practice mobility a bit during the week, using it as sort of my stretching, my warm up. I get into my body and work before I'm into my jujitsu. And oh, gotcha. Okay. You know, before I do, I use it as a way to keep my joints lubricated, strong, flexible. I need my joints to do their proper work. So in order to get them to do their proper work, I need to move them in range to end range. So mm. I try to do that through my strength training, through my mobility work. Through my and Cameron, through. real quick with that, your space, do you like music? Do you like just nothingness? Do you like to be outside and there's nature? Like what puts you in that zone? I like music a lot, especially when I'm strength training. Mm. I love 70s rock. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, I grew up in the 70s. So 70s rock for me is pretty important for my training. Some And 80s new age like new wave. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll listen to a lot of Depeche mode and certain style, <laughs> certain old school. And then sometimes I'll put on some new stuff depending on, I like a lot of blues, uh, rhythm and blues as well, but some music I like a lot, but I think it's just so important back to your other question. Yes. Just in terms of training is, you know, when I've got my Led Zeppelin on, I like to grip the shit out of that bar and yeah. I like to be working pull-ups and push-ups. I think you got to learn to love the effort it takes to grab and hold and use your strength. And there's been some really interesting scientific study done on grip strength as it relates to early cognitive degenerative sort of diseases like Alzheimer's. Yeah. And they found that with the decay of the brain also comes the decay of the grip. Or is it the grip? than the brain. I, I don't know. Right, but, right. But they have this very interesting, you know, way they've sort of looked at that. And so I, I feel like, yeah, stay grabbing, strong, gripping hard, keep using the machine to its full capacity. I think it keeps you alive and it keeps you strong and it keeps you sustained. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, like my sort of overall message is it keeps you anti-fragile, keeps you able to grow from adversity from difficulty, you know, from stress. I think it's a driving home point. So you would do movement training before some jujitsu and how are you doing jujitsu? Like a, is this like an everyday thing or what's your training week? Schedule? I try to train jujitsu every day. I mean, I, some days I'll put in striking or MMA or rest yeah. or something in, instead of that, because you know, some days, and it depends on what I did, you know, but I usually have pretty tough rounds. You know, my guys are, are young and athletic that I train with a lot. So they tend to be tough. So, you know, I'll do two, you know, I can do a couple hard days and I'll just take, you know, maybe one day off, but these young guys, they can just go every day. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> but for me, I, I give myself a little recovery time sometimes between one of those ways would be just to slip in some MMA, get some gloves on, work my hands, my kicks some wrestling and in my body, I frame a lot. I mm -hmm. frame and I escape and I wrestle quite aggressively. So that tends to be, you know, quite a bit of work on the body. Uh, yeah. You know, 
And I feel like, especially all the movement training you do, you feel that the full range of motion of what your joint should be doing is more available. The flexibility, of course, coincides with it, but also being able to weight bear, weight bear in that. So if you got, you know, you hear someone's, they get the bicep tear and it's usually like we're bearing weight here and they're not used to the flexibility of, or range of motion of the elbow that way. And also, you know, the, it pops off the ball. It's very interesting being able to take that tension as well for the tendons and joints and things like that. Yeah. I mean, you, and that's where strength training matters so much. You, you mm -hmm. have to, you have to get used to bearing your body's weight, holding weight away from you. I mean, it's just crucial. Our ancestors got it through climbing trees. If you watch a chimpanzee or bonobo climb a tree, they literally like grab it and go up. And they're just so strong that you just can't imagine how you can just with just the force of pressure, you know, no branches, nothing to grip, just the force of tension of you pulling, you know, you can walk up a tree, you know, these guys are very strong and uh, they can, you know, and to swing from here to there to jump branches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that too. Cause a lot of your movement does have the, like an animal movement quality to it. You like animal pose and the gorilla walk. And, and when yeah, you do I mean, that, your range of motion, you feel it open up. Cause everybody's just sitting in a chair all day, you know? Yeah. I mean, when it comes to the uh, crawling pattern work that I do, it's crucial to get people back onto all fours so they can experience their sort of original locomotive pattern because we first learned to crawl before we did anything. Yeah. So it's getting people back to that and getting people familiar with that and getting people back to the struggle of that. We were all just trying to stand up and efficiently walk. And once we got there, we just never want to go back down again. Interesting. Yeah, it's such an important thing. Not just for jujitsu, everyday life. Thank you so much for taking time. It's amazing to finally talk to you face to face. Thank you for being interested in what I'm doing and reaching out to me. I'm super grateful. Thank you so much, brother. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.